reading is all out of Hebrews, starting in chapter 10, and then we jump to 13 there. Well, uh, in May of uh, 1940, there were some 300,000 plus Allied soldiers stranded on the shores of Dunkirk, France. And uh, the problem was they were cut off from retreats and uh, there was encroaching German forces coming in. And uh, so the story goes, um, in a bunker, in a cave, with a generator called the dynamo, the, the plan called the dynamo was, was birthed. So here's what happened. The British uh, uh, Commonwealth decided to uh, commandeer all of the nearby uh, and available fishing vessels. And what they did was they created flotillas in which to go sail across, rescue the uh, soldiers from the, the, the shore, and then come back. And so you may have seen this movie or heard of Operation Dynamo. There were some 700 civilian boats that were, they're not commandeered, but they were used for this purpose. Things like rowboats and lifeboats and yachts and pleasure steamers and fishing boats and barges, right? You get the picture that these were not military vessels. And yet here they are employed for the specific use of rescuing these troops that had no other hope uh, to escape the oncoming pressure and certain death. And so really um, this was one of the most amazing uh, feats of military force and civilian force coming together. And so what they did because of the shallow beaches was they needed to use the, um, the, the smaller boats, the, the, the common vessels to go in close to the beach so the soldiers could get out to the waiting larger vessels to make their escape. And so, like I said, some 300,000 plus men were rescued over the series, uh, course of nine days. And after this was the famous, we'll fight them on the shores and we'll fight them on the beaches and all that speech. And so this was an amazing feat of the very common and the ordinary coming together at a time of extreme and dire circumstance and great need to bring extraordinary grace to those that needed it. And so that is, in my opinion, a picture of the church, that it's the common and the ordinary, not necessarily the great and the extravagant and grandiose, that's orchestrated by uh, sort of a, a, a leadership structure that brings about extraordinary and uncommon grace to us. And so we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 14. We'll just cover verses 21 through 28, which will finish out the chapter for us. And we're going to be talking about breaking good. Breaking good, meaning it results in your good. And talking about discipling in tribulation. So if you would, would you pray with me as we turn our eyes to the text and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I pray that these next moments are pleasing to you and therefore are good. And I just pray that you would use these words to encourage us. Um, we are weak and feeble and we get discouraged easily. And so we just need um, your word to speak life into our weary souls this morning. And so I ask that you would do that by your spirit, that you would um, fill these words with your life and that they would then go into these hearts that are stony and rocky, and you would clear them to make them fertile soil for you. So God, would you do this? 
because I am not enough to make that happen. So help me to be a vessel for your use and make us useful as well, stewards of your word by giving us what we don't have, which is the eyes to see and the ears to hear, hearts of flesh to understand and receive what you would speak. We thank you for doing this. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. Well, that rescue sort of gives a, a, a decent illustration for us about the common and the ordinary being extraordinary. And so I think we think of the church largely as this structure that is really something we participate in, but there's really like one person that's the pastor and he's kind of really helping us get through things and he's got some helpers and those are the elders and I'm just kind of here partaking. I'm just like here to consume. And uh, I think this all is a misdiagnosis of what, what we are as a church, which is disciples. And that very fundamental misunderstanding is, is uh, pretty sorry that we got to halfway through the book of Acts before we're going to actually define what a disciple is. But um, it will help us in our efforts to understand what's going on, how the church grows, and how God has equipped the church to continue growing um, by what he does in gifting people to it. And not just this, the, the, the elders or not just the missionaries. And so it's, it's the disciples themselves that are making the structure work. And so it's the common and the ordinary working through uh, difficulty and hard times to produce goodness and fruit. So let's look together at the text. I'll just remind you that they, uh, they being Paul and Barnabas, are just freshly persecuted stone. Stone, Paul was left for dead outside the city. The disciples gathered around. He's miraculously raised. We don't know if he was just out cold or either way, it's not good to get stoned, but he goes immediately back into the city. And then he travels some 60 miles uh, to Derby. And so uh, that is where we've sort of left off with this journey. So they're in Derby and it says in verse 21, it said, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So what happens here is they begin to retrace the steps from where they had just come. So I think um, one issue that we have is, is Paul is misunderstood in our minds. We sort of caricature Paul because of his proliferation of writing in the New Testament. He's like, did, did Paul write that book? You got a, a 60% chance of being right if you just answer yes every time in the New Testament. Because he wrote so much of it and his missionary work. So we, we sort of think of Paul as this guy who is just going place to place to place. And we have this, I don't know if you guys remember, but the Looney Tunes version of Johnny Appleseed. And he's just kind of walking through the wilderness and just indiscriminately machine gunning seeds into the ground and they become great orchards and he just tips his cap and moves on. But that's not what Paul is doing. He's very um, carefully and purposefully going back through and he's making disciples. And that's important. And I think um, this mischaracterization and misunderstanding of who Paul is um, comes from the fact that he was just so effective at doing this. And so Paul's intention, though, is not to make churches. Paul's intention is to disciple, is to create disciples who, by extension, then create or form churches. And so he does this by just proclaiming the word of grace, the word of the gospel, and we see all kinds of different responses to that. And as he comes back through, he's affirming or confirming this word of grace. And so this morning, you hear that the church is built in discipling because disciples are the church. And so if we just go to the, the, the Great Commission, 
the, the thing that we should all be familiar with as the marching orders, the last thing that Christ said before he's ascended on high, he said, go, therefore, and what? Make disciples, which in, in that uh, English translation is unfortunately uh, misleading because that, well, the word make there, is, it doesn't exist. It's just going, therefore, disciple. Because disciple is both the verb and the noun. It's what you're doing that creates the thing that you're doing. So we need to understand that discipling is discipling. What? To become a disciple is to disciple, which makes more disciples, which is discipling. So it's the noun and the verb there, which is also and discipling. Okay? So let's sort this out real quick on a definition and um, see if this it might be helpful. So a disciple is... Just the most basic definition is somebody who is a follower. But if that's all it means, then people that tailgate you are disciples, right? And some of you are extra spiritual, right? Because you do it consistently. You do it really well. But that, that's, not, that's not a functional enough definition for us. It is somebody that is commissioned and confirmed. This is by, by Jesus' words of saying, going, therefore, disciple the nations is what he says. Disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and I am with you until the end, essentially, is what he says. So what he's saying by doing that is that going, therefore, disciple the nations, he, he's saying they are commissioned to come and be a part, and they're confirmed. He says baptizing them. That's the affirmation that you are part of this faith. So they are commissioned and confirmed through baptism. They are a follower and a learner. That means they're, they're, they're walking in the way of Jesus' example, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. So he's pointing to himself as the, the prototype of what it is that we should observe and follow. And that means that we are also observant and obedient to what it is that we observe. And then we are a follower of Christ's way specifically as opposed to some other way that seems good or right or beneficial, but it's specifically in the way that Christ instructed us or has instructed us, and then primarily with the empowerment or with the activity of the Holy Spirit to, to help us along the way. So this is a, a working definition, if you will, of a, of a Christian disciple. So disciples are not made the same way that churches are not planted. I know we use those terms a lot, but it's, it's a function of participating in the activity. So by, by being a disciple, you are following, you're learning, and what it was for Christ to hand this mission to what? The disciples. He's telling them to perpetuate this. So disciples make disciples, but they do it by discipling or being disciples. So by participating in the activity, it's a perpetuation of the thing itself. I know that is circular, but it's intentionally so. So because when disciples are made, they form into groups called the church. And so disciples are the church. Without disciples, you don't have a church. You just have a group of people. And so Paul is not after converts. His ministry is not measured in altar calls or conference attendance. His ministry is measured in disciples and in collections of those disciples being churches. And so we, we often just think, well, Paul's this missionary guy and he's just indiscriminately throwing the gospel out and these things happen to form together into churches. And then he writes to them later to help sort that out, but that's not the case. He's going to be very carefully setting things in order for our good and for their good that we need to we need to take instruction from about how we can be disciples. So churches are not planted so much as they are built and constructed 
and with much hardship and, and, and work and, and, and um, effort into them, they become what Christ wants them to be, which is a reflection of himself. So Paul's going back through, going all the places, and he's going back to the disciples to affirm and confirm the word that he's preached to them. In verse 22, it says, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, those that have accepted and, and had that word implanted in their hearts. And so there's a twofold ministry that's happening here. They're encouraging them and they're con- uh, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, uh, we must enter the kingdom of God. I skipped a word. I know I did. They're encouraging them and strengthening them, the very first word. They're strengthening them and uh, telling them, uh, encouraging them in the faith. And so this twofold ministry is made up of, of strengthening, which is the first half of it, which is just a compound word. Epi, which means on or upon or around, depending on the context that you find it. And sterizo, which is just a good, fun Greek word. Uh, so epi sterizo is what's happening here. To strengthen the disciples, which means to support structure, uh, the structure, come, kind of like undergird it, establish what it is. And so when Paul and Barnabas are going back through to visiting the disciples, they're, they're strengthening their position, whatever fledgling thing that's coming up. They, they mean to support it with some substructure. And then on top of that, they're encouraging it. We've already seen this because Barnabas is called the son of encouragement, right? And so we've seen this term before, and it's parakaleo, which just literally means to come alongside and to call out or to invite, to exhort forward, right? And so they're doing this, these, these two things for the disciples, for the express purpose of putting them in some kind of order. And so what, he's, what they're doing is they go to the disciples, they do these uh, strengthen and encourage, and it says in, in the faith, not just faith, not the activity of faith, but faith as we find it uh, expressed in Timothy as it would be wrong to neglect the faith in Christ. So whatever it means to belong to the Christian faith, that's what they mean to strengthen and undergird and encourage them forward in. And then he has this promise that we do this, we enter the kingdom. He wants them to stay faithful, encourage them, because we enter the kingdom through, he says, many tribulations. And so this word is uh, many-faceted, but here we find it, and it simply means pressure, just at its most basic definition. Why am I giving you so many definitions today? Because it helps you to understand why Paul is doing these things and the situation you also find yourself in. So wherever we see this term appear, it's variously translated as persecution, trial, affliction, test, so on and so forth. Because it has to do with the idea of pressure coming around, but it can be internal pressure or external pressure. Internal pressure meaning like the anxiousness that you feel about something or the wrestling in your flesh with trying to do good in the the face of temptation. But it can also be external pressure pressure that's applied by other people who hate you, who don't like the message that you represent. It can be literally being in the world and the difficulty that you experience. All these things are trials and tribulations, but surely Paul doesn't mean to say that through our suffering is the way that we enter the kingdom. So, so why, does he, why does he word it in, in this way? Like we, we don't pay for through some kind of hardship or by some kind of penance through pain, therefore we punch our ticket into the kingdom. Uh, we're, we enter the kingdom by grace through faith. So why does he say that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom? Well, there's a few other helpful things in the text. First, he says that we, and so some commentators speculate, well, was Luke among 
the people that are hearing this. And so he's, he's just accounting himself in with this collective group of people. We, we must enter the kingdom through these different tribulations. Well, I think it's much more helpful to realize that what Paul is saying is that we enter as a group, helping one another through all the difficulties, internal and external, all the pressures that we experience. And by doing that, yes, we're inaugurated into the faith through grace, and we accept the word implanted into us. But to continue on in that faith, right, by the definition of being disciple, to continue following, to continue being observant with the help of the Holy Spirit, we enter into the kingdom. In, um, in Romans, the whole book, there's only one time this, this phrase appears, the kingdom of God. And it happens in chapter 14. And Paul's saying, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. He's, telling, he's, he's negating what, it is, what is not found in and telling us what it is found in. So the kingdom of God is found in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is the activity that we need as disciples to help us along in this journey so that whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So what you need to know is that before all of this in chapter 14, Paul is talking about how we relate to one another when we have different opinions about food or drink, right? And somebody thinks that one thing should be eaten and another person thinks that that thing shouldn't be eaten. So there's different um, consciences, con- consciences, that's a tough one to plural, consciences at war or um, at uh, odds with one another. And so how do we treat those things? And so he's saying, look, the kingdom of God is not made up of the physical things that you're talking about that are causing division. It's the expression of those things that we find the kingdom of God. And so it moves the kingdom of God to something that is a place or a, or a specific tangible thing that we can get our hands around to something much more spiritual. And, and uh, I'm going to try to help put some also um, definition around this. So kingdom of God is a dominion not a domain, meaning it's not a place. It is the governance or the rule of God in the world. So that we say, is the kingdom of God over there? As though it was, could be a place. And it's not over there so long as we're just referring to a physical location or a, 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 a way of doing things. It means that wherever we find God ruling over people and the expression of his will being carried out, that is where the kingdom of God is. And it is, uh, it's fullness indicative, meaning it's not experienced altogether right now. And we have some concept that there is a fullness of it, but it's in heaven. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, we want the kingdom to be here on earth. Bring it here, and we want to experience it in that way. And so it's only, in our experience, it's partial or it's just inaugurated. So we have that saying that's something like, it's already and not yet. Meaning we can really participate in it. It's really here. Any time that God is ruling in our hearts and having his way on the earth, but we know that it's not totally perfect. So it's only partial right now. And it has to do with a way of life, which is faith and it's life in the spirit. So it's characterized in our righteousness or our ongoing walking with God. And that's really the most important piece to put there at the end. Okay, you get it. Okay, I should obey. I want to follow the rules. But the expression of that is with the help of the Spirit, I need to walk further along in the faith. And so the kingdom of God is what you're doing as you walk in the faith, expressing that righteousness through the help of the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here is that through many difficulties, we have to continue walking in faith with the help of the Spirit. Do you see 
the, the connection now. It's not you enter into the kingdom by doing a penance. It's that through many of these difficulties, we'll have to continue to walk into the kingdom of God. Makes sense. Ooh, I'm not convinced. I don't have time even if you're not convinced. So even if it doesn't make sense, just go back and listen to it later, I guess. So through these things, we must, we must enter the kingdom. So it's not that we're saved by our hardships. It's that we are saved through the experience of continually we walking together with one another with the help of the Spirit through all of the difficulties that we are presented with. So in verse 23, he says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them um, to the Lord whom they had believed. And um, the, the purpose of putting structure around the church is to help it, to aid it, to become everything that it needs to be, but also to, um, to, to help it function, to protect it in some ways. So opposition and disapproval is sort of what we've, we've seen be par for the course, bless you, par for the course as Paul has been spreading the gospel, but attached to delivery of the message is not just persecution, but also then adhering adhering to that message, adhering to that way of life. So it's a continual tribulation that happens over and over. And so um, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 talks about the difficulties of tribulation or trial and persecution. And so it's marked generally by two things. The first thing is actual physical difficulties or or, um, things that are imposed from outside and from within. But it's also marked generally by false teaching that are leading people astray. And so there's, there's two ways that persecution kind of rears its head. And elders are meant to help with both of those things, with both the external pressures and also the, the false teaching that might come up. And so they, they can be combated against, they can be undergirded and, and helped to strengthen against, but they cannot be prevented. So they're going to come regardless. And so the question is, what do we do in the face of those things? Well, 2 Timothy 3.11 is going to lay this, what I just said, out, but by Paul's own words. He says, My persecution and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, those are the ones we just read about as he was spreading the words, those persecutions which I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Okay? But he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there it is on the back end. He says, I, I receive persecutions as I was spreading the word. But coming back through, anybody who wants to go on and continue in the faith will also be persecuted. Why? Well, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's not just the physical persecutions that happen and not just the imposition of leadership and governments coming against you, but there's also deceiving and being deceived. That's false teaching that's coming in. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And there's the importance of godly leadership. Remember that you, you, were, you got it from an authoritative source, and so you need to carry that through. And so elders are the people that are supposed to help ensure that this happens. So elders in the New Testament are used interchangeably with the other word of overseer. And so again, here's a, another definition, and you don't have to remember the Greek, but you need to understand why they're, why they're here and what they represent, what their function is. So an elder uh, is somebody who is not physically aged, but is mature. They are an elder in that sense. This is a, it's a term that's borrowed from directly 
Jewish culture and the Sanhedrin, which is the governing council that is both the religious leadership and the governing leadership in the day. So there was elders that were in this council of of 70 people who were in charge of daily life, but they didn't have to be just the oldest people in the village. It was just the people that weren't mature. And so we have this other word that's used in conjunction with elder throughout the New Testament, and it's overseer. It literally is onlooker. Somebody that sort of can observe as in a way that's removed from the, the situation, the nitty-gritty of it, and can help guide and see what's happening around and outside and help navigate those kinds of things. So elders and overseers are essential to the function of, of the church. Therefore, they're essential to disciples. And so notice that Paul goes through and it says he appointed elders in some of the churches. No, all of the churches. Every church he appointed elders in. And these elders are not Paul and Barnabas. It is the local leadership. So how do you get somebody that has maybe been a Christian? We don't know how long this trip is. They've accepted this word. They've accepted this way of life. Some are totally Gentile. Some are mixed Jew and Gentile. So how do we get elders in this kind of scenario? Well, the answer is twofold. It's God's gifting and it's a combination of not just your, your spiritual gifting, but who, who, who God has made you to be, your particular disposition. And some people are more given to certain things that aren't good for eldership. They're okay and good for other things, but they're not good for that. And so as Paul is giving the qualifications in Timothy and Titus for what an elder should be like, he gives some parameters. Some of them are spiritual in nature, and some of them we wouldn't consider spiritual at all. But they have to do with their relationship with other people in general, and how they're viewed by the outside world. And so all these things combine together, both the spiritual gifting and just who God has made certain people to be that can qualify somebody to be an elder. And so, but the, the emphasis here is that these are the local leaders. And this is where sometimes I think churches get astray because they, they think, well, we don't, our, our leadership can be somebody that, that isn't here all the time. Or sometimes missionaries go and they plant churches and they're the, they're the elder or they're the overseer for that church. And that doesn't necessarily work itself out. You need somebody that is ingrained in that church, that shares life with those people. And so the elders are always a plurality and they're always part of that body. Jim read it in the intro to this, uh, to this message this morning, but in Hebrews 13... Paul is talking about the need for the, the leaders of the church. Do not neglect to do good. Share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing God. He's talking about the relationship of disciples one to another. And then he says, but obey your leaders. Submit to them. Now, we, we bristle at that. And that's because a lot of times leadership is abused. It's used in a more authoritarian way, which is not the, the intention of eldership. But it, the purpose of elders is seen in the fact that Paul's commending elders because they watch over your souls. And they watch over your souls as those who will give an account for how they watch over them. So there's, there's a weight riding on the fact that somebody's appointed to a particular role in that sense. And so he says, just let them fulfill that calling. Let them fulfill that role with joy, not with groaning. Don't make it hard for them to lead you, to help you see uh, in the midst of turmoil and difficulty. And so... Um, elders are there for other people. They, they serve through leading. They serve through helping navigate the terrain and the tough waters. 
So that's that, that's that group of guys that were in the bunker that birthed Operation Dynamo. But they can't carry it out on their own. They need all of the help of the collective, everyone, everybody helping to help uh, make the whole thing go. And so it's locally established leadership for the good of one another, and everyone is called to serve. And so it requires maturity from both the, the elders, but also from the church. Don't, don't make it difficult for them just because you don't like not being uh, called the leader or for, for whatever reason, having some personal reason why you don't think that you should submit to the leadership of the church. They're out for your soul to help guide and keep you. So those qualifications, uh, one of the, the most essential ones is though that they are able to rightly divide the word of truth because they're entrusted with guarding the gospel making sure that the doctrine is, is, is correct and that we are in the faith that was delivered. That's what uh, Paul had written, just to make sure that, remember who you uh, learned this from, make sure that you're holding fast to this word. So um, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, it says, apart from the other things, this is Paul, Paul had just before this, he listed all the difficulties and, and, and hardships in his life and, and the difficult things he had gone through. And he says, apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me. There's that word for tribulation. It's the internal struggle that he has, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. He, he feels a burden and a weight because he knows that for whatever reason, God's entrusted him with this ministry that he has to carry out. And his concern is that um, in his absence, that people are, are doing things that will shipwreck their faith, that will um, cause their souls to be damned. And he, so he says, who is weak and I'm not weak? He's saying, I empathize if they're in trouble and they're weak. Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant or I'm not frustrated about it. And so he's, he's talking about his deep connection and his embedding of his heart with the people that he's served and with the churches that he's planted. This is the weight of all, of all good shepherds, of all shepherds that are invested in the flock, to be anxious for your spiritual well-being, to make sure that you're fed good, non-poisonous grass, and that if you find yourself in trouble or wandering out uh, amongst the wolves, that um, I have concern for your heart there, and I have concern that you might be uh, in a dangerous place, and so there's, there's anxiety that goes along with that. But ultimately, it says that as they're doing this, they appoint elders that can watch over their souls. And it says, but then they just entrust them to God. They commend them to the Lord because it's ultimately God's grace that will keep you. It's not, it's not how good the elders are. And it, it's not how rigid or authoritarian they wield that authority. It's, it's God's grace that keeps people in his hand. And so they commend them to the Lord, knowing in whom they had believed. They didn't believe in Paul. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas that they had put their faith. They put their faith in the Lord, and so they just commend them again to the Lord. And it says, now they continue on. They passed through Pisidia and came through Pamphylia, which is the coastal region there. It says, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, and they had been where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they kind of recap the whole journey. I just want you to note, we're not going to spend time on it, but just note that these were places where Paul had gone, initially shared the word, and there was a, a mixed variety of responses, but mostly negative, mostly like, 
would you show your face in this town again knowing that the last time you were there, they killed you or tried to kill you? Thought they killed you at least, right? So he goes back through. They visit all of these places, all only to return finally back to where they had, they had themselves been entrusted to the work. And then we, we might think if we were in this scenario, we had set about this task, we'd done all this thing, they would arrive back at home. We, we did it, guys. High five. Mission accomplished. We did everything that we set out to do. And we did it through much travail, and it was very difficult. But they don't say mission accomplished. They are, they're going to do much more than this. They don't just rest in the fact that they had done some things for the Lord. They don't say, look what we did. It's time to retire. We did some. We did enough. We, we had some great success. That's probably good enough. Let's go ahead and call it quits while we're ahead. We have our lives. And I just want to commend that to you, that you notice that it's not, it's, it's very easy to get some success and live in that success forever. It's very easy to live in a good season and then remember that season and think that you're still in that season when you're clearly not in that season anymore. That's the temptation of our, of our lives, of our world. Because how difficult was it to be in that good season? Right? It's much more easy to be nostalgic about it than it is to re-engage in the difficult task of going and doing it again and again and again for as long as God gives you grace to do it. Verse 27 says, When they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They began to recount all of God's goodness and all of God's faithfulness to them on this whole missionary journey. Guys, you remember the time that God just started saving Gentiles? I mean, how crazy was that, right? They're just sharing the goodness of God and his mercy and his provision and that he had opened a door of faith, one that they had not expected to the Gentiles by going into this region. And so Paul had sort of expected it, but they're just sharing this with the church. Remember at Antioch, which was the first place where the Gentiles began to be saved. And this is the place where they were commissioned from. And so they share what God was doing and his ongoing purposes for them. And there's just an encouragement one to another. And he begins to talk about this open door that, that God had provided. In Revelation chapter 3 to the church there, Jesus said, Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. This door of faith, a wide door, in Paul's definition, is one that includes knocking on the door, being spit, having somebody spit in your face, being beaten, and run out of town. To Paul, that's an open door, right? If you think about his experience on this missionary journey, he reflects back on all of the hardship and the difficulty and the tribulation and says, that was an open door. And we're all, honestly, we're always looking for the door that's open and somebody's beckoning, beckoning us inside with some nice warm cookies, right? I mean, that would be nice, but that doesn't happen. It's, it's difficulty mixed with blessing because it's hard work. It's intentional work. A wide door of effective ministry has been opened to me is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but there are many adversaries. There's always going to be a doorkeeper. God may have provided the door, but there may be somebody at the door that doesn't want you in that house. There might be adversaries. In 2 Corinthians, when he refers to an open door again, he says, even though there was an open door by the Lord to me, I, I did not go because I was called to Macedonia. 
So sometimes God provides a door, but he doesn't necessarily want us to walk through it. And so what, how do we discern where that is? Well, we wait on the Lord, and then we're just diligent about the task. We don't say mission accomplished. And so they're, they're, as they're recounting all of this and how good God had been, it says they remained no little time with the disciples. And so we end where we started with the disciples. They're going back through, making disciples. They returned back to where they started with the disciples. And this is what you would call home base. They reported God's working. They shared God's grace. They benefited one to another mutually by going and reporting all, all that God had done. And it's not all that they had done. It was what God had done through them. Very importantly, giving the credit to the Lord. So we end where we started with disciples who are the faith-filled, fruitful followers of God. And so this picture of a disciple this morning, I think, is what's critical in our, our, our experience. Sometimes we need to be picked up. Sometimes we need to be the ones to pick other people up. And you don't have that unless you engage in discipleship. And the only place to do that is the church. Because the church is disciples, and disciples are the church. Hard seasons in life are, are guaranteed. Hard seasons in ministry are guaranteed. And they require disciples who are in the trenches with you. Why? Because they're in the trenches with you. And they can understand, they can relate, they can help you. When Paul says to the churches, like so he's going back through, he's trying to affirm them. He's, remember, he's encouraging, he's strengthening them. And the word to them is, look, you're going to go through a lot. Through many tribulations, we're going to have to continue this thing forward. And so you would think with the frequency of that, that the tone of Scripture in general or the tone of the report would be overall negative. Like if I guaranteed you a certain rate of negativity in your life, you would sort of be a pessimist, would you not? I think you would. I mean, like, but that's what he's done. He's essentially said, look, like through many difficulties and trials and hardships we're going to have to enter, and yet the tone never goes to negativity or, or give up. It's going to be, it, it's, it's, it's hard, so, you know, just buckle down, Eeyore. That's not, that's not what's presented. In fact, we see just the opposite. Every time that tribulation and trial is appointed or, 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 or pointed out as the lot for those who would follow God, it's it's tied not just to joy, but also to purpose. Or maybe I should say it this way, because there's purpose, we should have joy in them. In 1 Peter, I'm going to read you four scriptures. So just listen for a minute. In 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though right now you're going through trials, take joy. Why? Because it's refining your faith. It's doing something in you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, let no one be moved by these afflictions, these persecutions, these trials, these difficulties. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. There's the guarantee for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you were going to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know, but take heart. There's, 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 there's going to be building for you a, a, a goodness. There's a payoff to it. 2 Thessalonians 
to the same group of people. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions which you are enduring. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The, the tone of the text is not to say you're going to meet trials, so like, sorry. It's you're going to meet trials, but there's purpose in it. There's joy to be found in tribulations and suffering. Why? Because ultimately they're for our good. And this is the paradox of trial and difficulty. God's design is not to break you so that you are a broken, worthless thing. But it is to break you. What what does that accomplish? God has divinely and infinitely, with all goodness and all wisdom, purposed affliction and trial and suffering and difficulty in your life for your good and for his purposes. How does that happen? Because it breaks you of any notion that you are good enough on your own. It will break you of you. Not so that you are a worthless thing, but so that once you're broken, you find that you are utterly useful in brokenness. Breaking is good. We have uh, an affinity to paraphrasing a text that we ought not to paraphrase, which is God will never give me more than I can handle. You better read that again. (laughs) God will give you more than you can handle with with regular. He he intentionally gives you things that you will will not be able to handle on your own. That text is from 1 Corinthians 10. I think... I have it, but if I don't, let me just read it to you. What the text actually says is this. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he doesn't say he won't give you more than he can handle. He says, in fact, that he won't give you, he's only given you what you should be able to handle in temptation. Now, think about that for a second. He's only given you what you could withstand with temptation, and we fail that regularly, do we not? We're presented with temptation, we fail in that temptation, and God has given it to us, but he's also said it wasn't more than you should be able to withstand. But we, we, if we know we fail that on the regular, that should tell us something about ourselves. Every time we choose sin over Jesus, we're failing this test. If we fail in just the normal, everyday, common sin or not sin, I do this or not that, right? Like, if we fail in those things, what about the great big weights of temptation? The trials and afflictions that we experience, whether from within or without. So the question ultimately is this. Do I go it alone to be broken into failure, or do I go it in a group to collapse into Christ. There's, there's a kind of breaking down alone that results in your utter destruction and failure, but collapsing, think about it this way, into a group of people who can hold you and hold you up. Yes, it's the, there's, it's, the same, it's the same thing happening, but alone it's destruction, but in a group it's collapse and rest into people that can pick you up and carry you along the way. God 
two is not just the disciples, but God also with you, alongside of you, and inside of you by the Holy Spirit, right, is also with you to help you in these things. We need disciples because disciples need disciples. And by discipling, we make more disciples. And we're here one for another. You need other disciples. You need other leaders. Why? Because they need you. So it's, it's circular in that sense. Do not neglect being together. That's that last bit of that. Oh, actually, it comes before the Hebrews 13. It's in Hebrews 10. Don't neglect being together. We're so easily discouraged on our own that we would be tempted to do that. So that by gathering together, by being put into this community of people, you are meant to get encouragement, find encouragement towards the goal. Many people are content to just try to make it on their own. They think either I don't need the church or I don't want to be part of the church either for whatever reason, and that's foolish. We think, well, this is really hard. If you fail in the small things, and it's pretty much guaranteed you're going to fail in the difficult thing, even acknowledging that, the mantra of the loner is that I'd rather fail so that nobody knows. I'll fail alone so that nobody sees me collapse, which is a a silly thing to do. God has provided the means for us not to fail. He's provided a way for us to, to rest in others. I need the church because the church needs me. You need the church because the church needs you. Because the church needs you, you need the church. Belonging to the church does not guarantee your salvation. It does not guarantee or or make anything sure. But without it, some things are assured. That when tribulation and trial come, it's not that those things create something new in you that was not already the case. What trial and difficulty and pressure does is it reveals weaknesses. It reveals places where you have either not seen something or you're not totally walking in faith. And so when you meet up with pressure and difficulty and anxiousness, whether it's from within or without, it stirs up things in you that uh, can cause failure or it exposes the weaknesses. If you just think about a bridge that's been built and the the, the weak point of the bridge is never exposed until too much weight gets put on it or more and more weight gets stacked on it. Eventually it collapses, right? And it's not that the weakness wasn't there already. It's that the, the, the weakness was revealed by the fact that more and more was put on it. So listen to what Paul said. Through many of these heavy weights and pressures, we have to enter the kingdom. So the question is, are you going to do it alone? Or are you going to do it with a group of people? Are you going to do it with the intended discipleship to help carry you through that? I'll end with this because I kind of forgot about it, but <laughs> oh, oh, I mixed it up. This uh, this gla- this uh, pitcher of water. If I leave it set here for uh, quite a while, now it's it's a little bit murky right now, but it's not near as murky as it uh, as it could be. <laughs> Thank you. If you let it set, we came back tomorrow, this would be totally clear. And at rest, when there's no difficulty, there's no pressure, there's nothing putting, uh, changing your life, there's no hardship, you are fine and, and you feel fine and everything looks clear. But it's 
once difficulty comes, it churns things up, and there's, I'm just going to make a mess. It stirs up, there's sand in the bottom of this and all this sediment. It stirs up things that were already down there. And so we, we can't go through life thinking that we are okay in the times where we're not struggling with anything. We're not going through any tribulation. So we say, I'm okay on my own, right? I'm okay when there's no weight on me. The, the bridge is holding just fine. But once difficulty and other things arise, we're, we're tempted to retreat into ourselves and do things alone so that we're not exposed or our weaknesses aren't exposed. So my encouragement this morning is simply this. To, to be a disciple, what God has directed us to be in Christ's words and the commission involves difficulty and, and working through those things one with another in the, in the context of people who are also doing the same thing as you are. And we're so worried that we're going to get exposed when everybody's in the same boat. Everybody has different times where things in their life are going wrong and exposes the flesh in our lives, the sin in our lives. And thinking that if we just don't participate in what's meant for our good, what's supposed to bring us to maturity, if we don't participate in that, nobody will think that I've ever done anything. Nobody will ever think that I have sin in my life. And this community is a community of grace that's supposed to help you realize those things and walk through them. They say like, hey, like you got shook up and I, there's some stuff in your life that helps to do that in the context of a group of people rather than pretending that there's really nothing in your life. Are you seeing the illustration even though it's not poor, even though it's not clearly coming together in my, my picture? Thank you. In 2 Corinthians, I'm ending with this verse. I want to give you encouragement. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. In seeing the difficulty, we're not driven to despair. We don't give up. We're not forsaken when difficulty and trial come upon us. We're not destroyed when we're struck down. But what's happening is that we're carrying the body of death, or the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in who we are and how we live out our faith. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that in our gathering, in our being, what we are, in God rooting out the difficulties or rooting out our sin in difficulty, we find that the life of Jesus is, is in that, in that happening. So I want this to be both an encouragement and a reflection that you might say, like, am I, am I participating in this discipleship to the, the fullest that I've been called to? Should I benefit more from this community? What could I add if I was here more, if I was sharing my struggles? Maybe somebody needs you to pick them up this morning. Maybe somebody needs your encouragement. That's the intention of surrounding 
you with people that not just have the same goal as you, but are filled with the same spirit as you.